Today on the Track Pack Road Trip Podcast, we talked to author Gord Hunter about his life as a sailor in the Royal Canadian Navy during the Cold War. Thank you for the Memory Project for making this collaboration possible. Good afternoon, Gord. Good afternoon. How are you? I'm pretty good. Welcome to the Track Pack Road Trip Podcast. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's great to be here. I have to tell you, it's been so wonderful to read your book at this time because of our heat wave here. So <laughs> seeing your pictures where you're like surrounded by ocean and then reading about you working and living on the boats and the submarines and surrounded by all that water has been very refreshing at this time. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it, it's a lovely climate. It's interesting because I think they're going through a heat wave now too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Um. Just to let all of our listeners know, we have, uh, there's three copies of your book in the Track Pack uh, catalog. So anyone that has a library card in Alberta, they can borrow your book and read it. That's great. Yeah. So before you do a reading, can you tell everyone a little bit about yourself and where you're from? Sure. I'm, um, my name is Gord Hutter. I was, uh, I was born in Quebec um, in a little town, paper mill town called Grand Air. And, uh, but I, I, you know, in my teens, I was in the West End of the Isle of Montreal, and I joined the Navy when I was 17 during the Cold War and, um, and spent eight years in the Navy. Uh, and um, I did a whole lot of other things after that. I worked in television, uh, worked for CBC and for CTV at different times. Uh, I, worked in, I worked in radio and I worked in the trade union movement for about uh, about 30 years. So I've done a whole lot of things, a lot of interests and a lot of things sort of going down. I started the book, um, you know, it, it, as a blog, really. And we can talk more about that when we sort of, um, you know, after this sort of reading, but um, it started as a blog and then just kind of evolved into a book. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, so it was a lot of fun to do. And I've got a lot of great feedback as a result of doing it. And uh, I really enjoyed it. My dad is very envious of you because um, when he joined the military, his first choice was the Navy, and he they, he said that they weren't accepting any people at the time, so he had to go into the Air Force. <laughs> so, so he's very envious of you. <laughs> Can I tell you my favorite parts of your book? Has I'd love to hear. It. <laughs> um, first, I love because I'm from. I went to school in um, Dalhousie in Halifax, so okay. anytime that you mention. Barrington Street or Halifax. I just love that because it just brought back memories of being in Halifax. And then, and then um, I grew up in Sydney. And so oh, and my really? dad's still in Sydney. So when you talk about Sydney, I like that too. And then my favorite part of the, like one of your stories was when you were sleeping with a torpedo, <laughs> the <laughs> torpedo room. <laughs> yeah. But it's yeah, it was, uh, it was a great, you know, it's funny because that whole thing about you know, people think, oh, torpedo, that must be awful to sleep in the torpedo. But I loved it because it was, it gave me a lot more privacy, a lot more space. Uh, and more space, yeah. And absolutely. it's fascinating because a lot of questions that I had about what it would be like being in a submarine or on a, a Navy ship, because you always hear lack of room, lack of room. And then you just say so many details about life on a submarine and a ship. So it's been interesting. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it was an experience. <laughs> um so yeah we'd love to hear um an excerpt from your book if you can share one with us okay i i will and, I, and first i guess i should say i really you know i really appreciate 
being asked to talk about my work and, uh, and to the Memory Project really that does great work and helps people tell their stories and share their stories. And, uh, and, uh, and I really appreciate the work that they did in, in helping to get this, to set this up. Yeah, because they, they put us together. The Memory Project put us together. Yeah, they did indeed. And they'd really do good work. That's the second thing that I've done actually uh, since, the, since the pandemic um, on the Memory Program. I talked to a grade seven class, I think one time. Uh -huh. uh, a while ago, but because it restricts your ability to get out and talk in uh, in person. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I I, uh, I the beginning of this I um, give you a sense of uh, give me a sense and perhaps put things into context. I recently came into possession of a couple of letters that my dad wrote uh -huh. in 1962, and uh, he wrote to my older brother and he said, "I'm not really sure what to do, but Gord, I'm trying to keep him in school, but he's at the stage when he thinks all his teachers are stupid." So predictably, in August of that year, I'd really thought I had enough of school, and uh, and my principal, I think, thought they'd had enough of me. So at 17 years old, with no job prospects, really unsure what to do, I jumped off the deep end and and joined the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh -huh. And like every sailor who joined the Navy from 1942 until 1994, I was sent to HMCS Cornwallis, a land base where. Um, I had to suffer through 16 weeks of uh, a ritual humiliation that the Navy called basic training. <laughs> In the last week or so of our training, we were preparing for a ceremonial graduation march past, and it was discovered that the Soviet Union uh, was placing ballistic missiles on um, uh, and was setting them up in Cuba. And uh, President Kennedy in the US um, announced that he would set up a naval blockade to stop this from happening. Um, and was joined in his endeavor by most of the NATO fleet. So unsure what to do with us, because we had just finished basic training, really. Uh, we were kept in Cornwallis, and uh, like everybody else, we sat in pins and needles trying to figure out what uh, was going to happen until it worked itself out. But, but in the end, this settlement was negotiated by the United Nations, the blockade was lifted, Nikita Khrushchev brought the missiles back to the Soviet Union. And um, uh, and we all kind of relaxed as relaxed as one got in uh, the middle of the Cold War. In uh, late December of, uh, of uh, that year, I was sent to HMCS Staticona, which is a land base in Halifax. And I had to really wait to be sent to sea. Um, we used to walk around the dockyard in those days, looking at all the ships, the different kinds of ships, the aircraft carriers, the destroyers, the minesweepers, all the uh, different options that we might have uh, ended up being sent to sea on. And, and uh, I really wanted to, to end up on a destroyer escort or something like that. But so I wasn't all that impressed with in mid-January, I was sent to uh, an old Prestonian class frigate, HMCS La Loise, which everybody pronounced La Loise. Um, I remember being dropped off at Jetty One with everything that I owned in two kit bags, carrying them across the gangway and the quarter decks of the other frigates tied up there side by side. And mine was the third one out. Truth be told, there wasn't really very much impressive about the frigates. They were only 301 feet long, 36 feet wide, and the ship had a top speed of 19 knots. So even flat out really couldn't beat a uh, school zone speed record. Generally, warships aren't all that cozy. They are made of steel without a lot of amenities. And as junior hands on the hallways, we ordinary seamen lived and slept in the forward mess Bunks stacked three high in the worst possible spot. The only thing between us and the pointy end was the paint locker. It stunk of varsol and paint and below us, two decks down, 
was the sonar dome compartment with a noxious reek of hydraulic fluid. It wasn't exactly comfortable, but it was after a fashion home. So my first few trips at sea were spent pounding around the North Atlantic off the coast of Nova Scotia and Newfoundland. And I don't think there's a colder, more miserable place, particularly for a seasick kid. In those early days, I spent a lot of time in what the smart ass guys called the funnel watch. The ship's funnel was warm and if you leaned against it, you could get out of the wind and more importantly, breathe that fresh air that at times was the only thing that really would settle my stomach. Mm. Off Canada's east coast, the oceans are dark green. The winter skies are often overcast, giving a dull gray look. As a kid growing up in Montreal, I'd never seen anything like it. It was as if the ocean was alive, always moving, more powerful than anything that I ever could have imagined. Seabirds such as storm petrels and terns fed on the ocean's surface, skimming just above the water's surface. Always seeming to calculate the waves next move up over the crests and down into the troughs, and I never saw one miss. They certainly handled the whole thing an awful lot better than we did. When we were looking for submarines, a sonarman, or I was a sonarman, we were excused from wheelhouse and cold lookout watches, and instead we spent hour upon hour closeted in the sonar control room, wearing old Bakelite headphones, and as the pulse of the sonar signal went out, listening to what we call reverberations, those ocean sounds echoing back to us, hearing propeller noises from other ships, the odd whale, shrimp calc uh, crackling, <clears throat> and the occasional odd sound we dismiss as fish farts. We were searching for submarines. One degree at a time, we'd scan up the port side across the bow, down the starboard quarter, and back again. Late some nights, bored beyond belief, we would surreptitiously whistle a short tone at a so slightly higher frequency than the reverberations, just to see if we could get the leading seaman in charge to bite. If it worked, he'd jump up and he'd say, what's that, what's that? Quick, quick, go back, go back, go back to where you were. On a good night, we'd all have a laugh. But for time to time, so convinced that he'd heard a solid echo, before we could stop him, he would convince the officer of the watch to turn the ship around and search the patch of ocean we just traveled through. On those occasions, we kept our mouths shut, pretended to be listening very hard for an echo that might be a submarine. There was no point testing the captain's sense of humor we had a pretty good idea how he'd react. In the spring of 1964, just before we were scheduled to sail to England and Europe, um, I was called out of the coxswain's office. I stuck my head through the door and said, like, what's up, coxswain? He said, pack your bags. You're being drafted to Gatineau. The ship's chief will, pack, will pick you up in an hour. The Gatineau, the HMCS Gatineau, was a newer ship, a destroyer escort, a big step up for me but I was gonna miss my first trip across the pond and I was not a happy camper. In the mid 1960s, I went to sea many times on two of the newer destroyer escorts, HMCS Gatineau and the Restigers. They were a major step up from the frigates. The food was pretty good. The mess deck was bigger. They handled rough weather better than the World War II vintage tribal class destroyers and frigates. And we called these ships the Cadillacs. If we were heading south, after three days, we'd be into the Gulf Stream and with the water turning from that green gray color to a deep royal blue, clumps of orange seaweed called sargassum floated up to the surface and the ocean teemed with sea life. The water in this area is incredibly clear and from time to time while standing lookout, we'd see porpoises and sharks. Once we saw the seaweed, we'd begin to start to see flying fish. As a kid growing up far from the ocean, I heard of flying fish, but I'd never seen one. 
So it was exciting to watch those small fish fly away from the ship as we steamed along. Although I guess to be accurate, they don't actually fly, they glide. But it's an impressive sight nonetheless. Just before takeoff, the, ships, the um, fish swims toward the surface and bursts into the air. And once airborne, the, uh, the ship spreads its pectoral wings, which are pectoral fins, which look like wings, and it glides just above the surface. Amazingly, they fly 40 or 50 meters, just skimming the water. And as well as getting out of the ship's way, they, they do this to escape predators looking for lunch. I'd stay up on lookout as long as I could in those days. I love the warmth of the sun, the smell of the tropical sea, and watching those fish glide above the waves, sometimes 10, 15, or 20 of them at a time. It was magic. And in Barbados, Barbados, they offered flying fish as a delicacy. I never tried it. It just didn't, it just didn't seem right. A seaman, when we were on watch, we had several duties. Uh, we stood lookout watches. We kept the ship's log up to date. We took turns at the helm. In the wheelhouse, we served as life boy sentries. And that person spent his time on the quarterdeck watching for any ship that might catch up for us from astern, but mostly looking out for anybody who might be on deck. During the day, I didn't mind an hour or so on life boy watch. There was usually somebody else working on the quarterdeck. So I'd help out giving a hand with the bathroom thermograph or rigging lifelines if we were expecting rough weather or just chatting up the cooks when they saw for a smoke after dumping the kitchen slops down the garbage chute. At night, however, it could be cold and lonely with nothing to do and nobody to talk to. In rough weather, we'd huddle around the canvas shelter that helped reduce the sea spray coming down the hatch, struggling to keep warm. It wasn't always like that. Sometimes the night watch could be magical. When it was relatively calm and clear, I'd marvel at the night sky with my limited knowledge of astronomy, trying to pick out the constellations, the Big Dipper, Orion, Cassiopeia, the Pleiades, and if we were heading down towards South America, each night we watched the Southern Cross climb higher into the sky while the Big Dipper sang lower and lower into the Northern horizon. Many of those nights I'd wander back to the stern, look down through at the water churned up by our propellers. The water would sparkle with tiny dots of phosphorescence and our wake would mark our progress through the ocean with a glow, a glowing pale green trail. When we were in the shipping lanes from time to time, we'd pass a large tanker or a freighter heading in the opposite direction, lit up like Christmas trees. They were hard to miss. I wonder what it would be like to sail on something many times our size. Think about the fact that somebody else on that ship was most likely doing the same thing as I was, wondering what it would be like to change places. After sailing for several years on surface ships, I was looking for a change and an old friend thought, we ought to try the submarine service. In the end, 79 of us applied, put in applications, 10 of us were accepted, and nine of us made it through basic submarine training. When we were done, I was sent to HMCS Onondaga, a British-built Oberon-class submarine. And in their day, they were the quietest diesel electric submarines in the world. Living in submarines wasn't for everybody. You lived cheek by jowl, it could be cold, the air circulation could have been better, and nobody could argue that it didn't smell. You couldn't shower when you were at sea because we just didn't have enough fresh water. So we took what was called birdies. We'd fill the sink with warm water and splash a bit on ourselves and try to wash off the best we could. But after a few days, you and all your clothes would start to smell like the inside of that old boat, an olfactory cacophony of sweat and cooking and diesel and hydraulics. 
The guys living in the forward mess swore that one of them had written Agriculture Canada asking what sorts of animals could be raised in an area, the dimensions of our living space, and received an answer back saying there was room to raise three pigs. <laughs> Instead, there were 30 of us jammed in there. Although admittedly, when we were at sea, we were never all there at the same time. After I'd been on board a while, fed up with sleeping in a bunk in the passageway, I managed to score a bunk in the forward torpedo room, which was considered by many, including me, to be a prime spot. There were six bunks up there. Two were side by side. So when the guy on the inside went on watch, he had to climb over the guy who was sleeping on the outside bunk. Mine was one of the single top bunks. In winter in the North Atlantic, when we were submerged, condensation would drip onto my sleeping bag. My feet rested on the end of a torpedo. And every time we blew main ballast, 4,000 pounds of compressed air would slam into a valve six inches above my head with a bit of a bang. But otherwise, it was a great spot for a bunk. It gave me a bit of privacy that you just didn't get anywhere else. So that's it. <laughs> that's the reading. To reading the uh, torpedo part because that's my favorite part <laughs> and i love hearing you talk about the flying fish <laughs> flying fish are just amazing you know we, oh we, they would be they, they really it's really something because as the ship goes along it disturbs them and and they they just sort of fly out on both sides and uh and they really do stay in the air a long time it's just impressive i used to love just staying up there in the gulf stream while we were in the gulf stream and staying on lookout watching and, and uh they were just I was so intrigued by them. You know. It'd be mesmerizing. Those are wonderful stories. It's like entertaining and informative. Thank you. <laughs> um, have you ever released your book in audio so people can hear your voice? I I haven't, and I and I really did consider it. Uh huh. Um, uh, but it uh, becomes a bit of an issue because it's not it's not cheap to do it. Oh. Okay. Um, if you're going to do it well, and so you've got to be able to make sure you've got enough distribution to be able to make it work. Um, uh, and so I looked into it and decided not to. My, my, uh, my nephew is, a, is an actor who does an awful lot of voice acting for cartoons and things like that. And he actually has his own studio. And so if, the next time I go to Vancouver, I'm gonna to talk to him about, about what it would take to sit down and do it, because we could do it with his, using his system. But, and then I could get a break on the cost. But yeah, that'd be good now part. I haven't. Yeah. <laughs> How long did it take you to write the book? You know what, from start to finish, the whole thing really took about seven years actually. Mm -hmm. And it started, you know, I, I started thinking that I've, I've done a whole lot of really interesting things in my life, it seems. And, uh, and so I wanted to be able to find a way to sort of save some of the stories um, really for my, for my kids and, and for my grandchildren. And uh, so I thought, well, a blog would be a good way to sort of start to do that. Okay. And um, so I, I, uh, so I created a blog, and I would, as I thought of something that I thought was interesting, I'd kind of write it up and and uh, put it on the blog. But blog being what it is on the internet, other people found it. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people that I had come, I, I had people I'd sailed with, um, other people who had been in the navy and different nations actually. Um, came across the stories, and I ended up getting a fair amount of feedback from it. And uh, and it grew, and it grew, and it got better, and I rewrote, and and I got to a point, and I thought, you know, it really wouldn't be that difficult. I think it was a lot more difficult than I really thought it was going to be. But I didn't think it was that difficult to take those stories, to to put them into the to a mixer, churn them all up, 
rewrite everything and do it again. And so, uh, so I did. And, and and many many rewrites later, it um, it finally uh, it finally really turned into a book. My uh, my 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 wife is a very good editor, and um, and she kept sending it back to me, saying, you know, you've got to make it more personal, more, you know, it's got to be more about you and more about about the personal stories, because I wanted to stay away from this. There's, there's hasn't been a lot written about the Cold War, so I really wanted to make it something that people who had been there could understand, and so we kept writing until I think I finally did get there, and um, and then uh, so about seven years later we. Uh, we did everything ourselves, actually. We did the layout, uh, picked the photographs, uh, found a printer, um, and um, started my own publishing company and uh, put it together and published the book. So those early readers of your blog were really motivating you. They were. Good, yeah. they, they were. There was a lot of really good feedback, and, uh, and people encouraged me to keep going with it because, uh, because so it's sort of what I kind of wanted to do. And so in a lot of ways, my stories were their stories. Mm -hmm. And um, and so I wanted to be able to share that so they could share uh, um, their, they could perhaps better share their experiences with uh, with the people that they knew. And I, and I had, had a lot of people, I got a huge amount of feedback from those people. And um, a lot of people said, you know, this, this is, great it gives me an opportunity i'm going to get my wife to read this book she's got no idea what it was like when i when i did this and i i had a guy actually who who uh, whose dad had died when he was uh, uh he was around 12 years old his dad had been in the navy during the same time that i was and uh, and he'd often really wondered about the kind of experience that his dad had gone through and um and he was really he's very moved by the book and uh and it gave him a much better understanding of of the kind of life his father life. Yeah, he could feel closer to his dad. Yeah, yeah, no, indeed, indeed. Yeah, the cover of this book is amazing and all the pictures inside, just great job. The cover practically sells itself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just love the cover. That was, it was interesting because we'd stop for us, you know, and, and we didn't do it very often, but we were, we had been in, uh, we'd been working in the Caribbean, um, um, sort of um, east of uh, Puerto Rico and, uh, and we'd finished what we were doing and we were waiting for whatever exercise was coming up next. And so we had some time to kill. So we surfaced and, uh, and went for a swim. We all took the time to go for a swim. And, and I was just sitting on the deck, uh, drying off and uh, relaxing a little bit before we got back to it. And a friend of mine took my picture. <laughs> I think it's a great hey, photograph. I was gonna ask you, Gord, because you look so deep and introspective in that picture. I'm wondering, what is he looking at? What is he thinking about? <laughs> And now oh, I, <laughs> I have no idea. I, you know what, I we were, you know, it was just. I think we were just kind of relaxed more than anything else, and sitting up yeah. watching some of the people who were still swimming. I think, yeah. <laughs> are you writing anything now, or are you continuing? I, you know, I'm not. I found it. I found it really difficult to get to get more motivated for whatever reason during mm -hmm. this pandemic. Yeah. Um, I I've got some people, some old Navy people poking at me saying, you know, look, you, you've got lots more stories to tell. You should do another one, you know, mm -hmm. so, but uh, I'm not so sure that I will actually. So I, you know, made a little writing just for me perhaps these days. But you're staying busy by promoting this book, which is great. <laughs> you know what I did, I it, it's been, I, I, I have sold quite a few during the, 
during the pandemic. And surprisingly enough, most of most of the promotion and most of the sales of the book have really come through social media. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, um, I've got, I mean, who knew there are hundreds, I think, of Facebook pages um, put together by by people who served on one ship and another in different navies and or groups of people who served in submarines and and so I've done a fair amount of promotion during those kinds of things and and I really I I don't know how many probably seventy percent of the books that I've sold have been to former Navy people or people with an interest in uh, mm -hmm. uh, in submarines and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. How can people get your books except besides through the library? Yeah, they can, they, there's, they're, you know, it's available certainly in library in Alberta and Allen in Saskatchewan. Um, but um, the, the book can be got through, and I don't remember whether McNally Robinson's Booksellers still has uh, uh, bookstores in Alberta. They certainly used to have one in uh, Calgary, but you can get it through them online. Okay. And, um, and, uh, and it's in the, it's in chapters or indigo in, um, in Regina, but I'm not, I'm not sure. It turns up online, and I'm not sure whether you can actually order it online or not. You can order it through SAS Books, which is the the publishers um, um, <coughs> group in in um, in um, Saskatchewan, or uh, you can get it through my website, which is where most of my sales come from, um, and uh, and that's at uh, at www no badge killick uh dot blogspot dot ca yes and, totally got uh, it. Mm -hmm. yeah and so that's uh and and that takes you right to the website and there's and then you can order the book you know using a credit card or paypal or send me a check or i don't really care how it comes and and then i'll i'll, I'll mail you the book and uh, so it's 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 quite easy to do but um but I, it's been difficult. It was difficult as an independent publisher to um, uh, to get the attention of larger distributors. You have to sort of tie yourself to them, <clears throat> and of course, they want to cut the action. <laughs> Gord, have you been on a on a ship since, or a cruise ship, or any kind of big ship since? No, other. You know what? Other than uh, other. Well, I've been I've been fishing. Mm -hmm. off uh, in the Pacific off Tofino and uh, uh -huh. and off Campbell River and stuff like that which is a, a a different thing and I've been on ferries and things like that mm -hmm. um, but I I actually haven't been on a, on a I haven't been to sea in a warship since I left in 1970. Mm -hmm. All right what are you currently reading now? I love to ask everyone what they're reading. <laughs> you know what I I read a I I read a lot of uh, of um, detective novels actually uh -huh. and uh, and uh I, I i think you know my favorite writer in that genre is, is ian rankin uh who's a uh, uh scottish writer writing about uh, detective in edinburgh so i i read a lot of those um uh a lot of novels that, uh, that sort of take place in in the uk a lot of those a whole series of of detectives which i like mm -hmm. uh, ian rankin is my favorite but during the pandemic i I read a lot of, um, I, I just, for whatever reason, fell into reading books by uh, George um, Sinon, who wrote the Maigret novels mm -hmm. in, um, in um, and they were all written in French and translated, but it's a, Maigret was a, 
uh, you know, a fictitious detective inspector in Paris. And um, Simon wrote, or Simon wrote, I don't know, like over 70 novels. And I read an awful lot of them during the pandemic. Uh, and I really, I really like them. They're very, they're very kind of retro because uh -huh. they go back to the 1950s for the most part. And uh, so, so the world was a different place. And, uh, and I really kind of enjoyed his take of it. I also read, um, I, read I really enjoyed a number of things by John Banville, who's, a, uh, who's uh, an Irish writer. And, and uh, I read Snow and the Sea and, and some others, but also there's a whole series of, of books that he wrote under the name of Benjamin Black. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're, they're referred to as the Quirk novels because it's about a pathologist named Quirk who practices in Dublin. So it's really interesting because you get the, the whole, um, you know, Dublin's a very complicated, um, Ireland's a very complicated country. And um, so uh, I really enjoyed the sort of look at the, you know, the, the, the conflicts between the church and the government and everything else as, as a sort of transition from um, into a really into a modern state. Mm -hmm. uh, so I really enjoyed them. And so I recommend John Benville and Benjamin Black to anybody um, because I think they're great. Uh, they're great books. Jane Harper, I was just an Australian writer. I oh, I just read, read her project. books. Which one? The Dry? Uh, the Dry. That's the one I read. Yeah, <laughs> I, I loved I, it. I, I, I did too. I just really, I've read a couple oh, of them. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I really, I really, really think she's, uh, uh, she's super. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Thanks, so that's basically what I've been reading the last little while. And when is your net? When and where are you? Is your next talk going to be? Well, there's nothing scheduled because of the um, COVID. Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, because of COVID. And once it's over, I'm hoping that the fall, uh, what I'll do is, uh, is, is um, try. I really like library readings, to be honest. I was like, <laughs> you know, they're hit and miss. You know, you know, you can go to a library and try to do a library reading and have two people turn up. Mm -hmm. But you can also go and and you know get a great crowd. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, there are people generally, there are people who really like to read and are interested in the process of, of, of writing and putting books together. So, so you know, I, I, those I usually do a 20 minute reading and then we'll talk for an hour sometimes uh, mm -hmm. just about, uh, about the book and about the Navy and about the Cold War and the history. And, and uh, so I really enjoy those. So I really hope I can do more of those in the fall as, as time goes on. It's nice to have authors come to the library because we always have people in the audience that have questions about the writing process and the publishing process as well. Yeah, it's a, it, it's really fun. I've just found I found those situations. You just get such a good dialogue, and uh, and I I always enjoy them. I really do. Do you have any non-book related or non-writing related hobbies you want to share with us? Well, I do. I I. I do a lot of photography, um, uh -huh. and uh, and um, so and most of it, most of it, sort of landscape stuff. My my wife does a lot of bird photography, and and, uh, and has uh, an amazing amount of bird photographs, of, and uh, and I mostly do landscapes, but um, we also like to travel a lot and, and have have uh, done a fair amount of traveling overseas and. Uh, and um, you know, riding trains and buses and ferries and and that sort of thing. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, so we we went um, not that a uh, couple of years ago, I guess we went to um, we flew to London, spent a couple of days there, and then 
he took a ferry across the Netherlands and then down into France and to Paris, the south of France, and about five cities in Spain and then Portugal, and even spent a night in the uh, in the uh, Azores on the way back. So, so we just saw that I have a lot of travel photographs. So. Do you post those online, board? I do actually. I have a I have a a Flickr site where that a lot of the uh, a lot of my photographs are are posted, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, and I have a good. I've I've got we have actually have a couple of good photo printers that we can print large format photographs and stuff. So mm -hmm. you know, we do that. The travel and photography are probably my favorites. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, thank you for talking with us today. Well, and I, I really do. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. We love our autograph books. <laughs> <laughs> you have a good uh, Canada Day weekend. Well, we will. We will. It's quiet, I think. And uh, and uh, try to stay out of the heat and not cook anything. Yes. Except outside on the barbecue. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye.